thoughts on the All-Star Game, rest of season projections, a look around the NL West, and much, much more. Derek Van Riper of The Athletic joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruben Guy. How are you, Ruben? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Well, I told you last week we won the Tuesday softball championship. Wednesday night, we won. Uh, it was uh, no doubter. We were up 8-1. We just pounded them from the start. And uh, just, uh, what a great two weeks of softball. Um, I also telling the guys that I played in a uh, Central Park tournament for my uh, office. Uh, my office is in a uh, insurance tournament every year. And we were doing well. We had two wins. And then it poured thunderstorm i completely soaked but a fun couple of a uh, couple of days fun couple of weeks playing softball how are you doing Ruben? i'm doing well most of my softball games have been rained out so it's hard to get to the championship if you don't play enough games well we have someone on the line here uh our guest today who claims that he hasn't seen rain since april uh we got derek van riper from the athletics so glad to have you on the show and what's this no you don't know you haven't seen rain in in a couple of months what yeah it's part of being in the bay area it's um it's a little unnerving actually i, I thought i would love never seeing rain but in my first full year of living in this climate it actually scares me a little bit so i'd be happy for a storm to shake things up yeah, you know, I was looking at the, uh, the continental U.S. and looking at the high temperatures for the day all over the, the U.S., 90, 90, 85. And the one point where it's like 60s, San Francisco, like upper 60s. Isn't that crazy? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's the beauty of it, right? If, as long as the place doesn't just burn, it's going to be consistently nice here more often than not. Yeah, good stuff. You're enjoying uh, living in the Bay Area? I know you moved from the Northwest. Midwest, I should say. Yeah, it's been been good to me so far, and uh, looking forward to doing it for at least one more year. I think it's it's at least a two year stop on the on the professional track for my family. All right, sounds good. Well, you can hear Derek Van Riper over at the Athletic does a lot of amazing podcasts, uh, does rates and barrels with Eno Saris, does uh, the athletic the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, and there's a bunch of different shows on there. Um, definitely a fantastic host, and today you get to uh, relax a little bit. You get to be the guest, and uh, I guess you leave us to be the hosting. And uh, you know, before we talk about some of our strategy and other stuff, the All Star Game was uh, this past week, and just curious to hear your thoughts. I, I personally thought that the mic'd up sections were unbelievable. Alec Manoa, that inning, hearing him talk with Smoltz, "What am I going to throw?" Yeah, that's a good suggestion, John. No, I'm going to go with the heater. I, I thought that was unbelievable. Well, what do you think? Loved it. Uh, at first, when that interview started, I was nervous that Manoa wasn't really going to say anything, just because I imagine when you're pitching, even in a showcase game, your focus has to be really high, right? You're exerting a lot of energy on every pitch, and I just think it's one of those things that is more difficult to do than having the earpiece in playing first base or even playing out in the outfield. So I'm glad they tried it. I don't know if it's the kind of thing we'll ever see in games that count, but I thought it was really cool to see uh, more of Manoa's personality, too, just getting a feel for that. I mean, you got that uh, last strikeout, struck out the side, you know, jumped off the mound and was walking off saying three punchies, and I just thought that was really cool, too. Uh, I thought David Ortiz 
running through the AL dugout at one point was pretty funny. I think we'd see more Poppy on the field. I think that'd be a feature as well if they were to do that more often. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff. And I thought that, you know, Manoa is the pitcher, and he controls the action. So I would almost think it would be easier to do the mic'd up sections because you say, all right, what am I going to throw? You wait, and you know when you're going to pitch. Uh, if you're an outfielder, I mean, the ball's going to come at any moment, right? You, 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 If you're in the middle of a sentence talking to uh, the studio, you sort of have to break because and, and, you, you don't know when it's going to come to you. Uh, you never know. Well, Nestor, Nestor Cortez and Jose Trevino also were mic'd up, and you saw they were they were communicating through the microphones, and they weren't putting down signs until the microphone stopped working for a bit, and then they had to put down and then go back to the regular signs. But you saw it, it was just it's interesting hearing how the pitcher thinks and how the catcher. Well, he didn't he didn't shake him off at all. But if the catcher would have shaken him off, that would have been very interesting to see. But obviously, they're both all stars. I never thought Jose Trevino would ever be an all star, but I guess he is. Um, and Nestor Cortez, I mean, he, he's just. I think it has to be the personality, the person to, or the player to do it to actually be mic'd up. Because I can never see Roger Clemens being mic'd up for an all star game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Trevino had a hit, and and he was mic'd up during that hit. That was pretty. Pretty cool. You know, uh, they changed the rules this year, and if the game would have been tied after nine innings, they wouldn't be playing a tenth. They would actually be having a home run derby to end it. Each team would pick three players. Each would get three swings, and whoever has the most at the end would win. If they're all tied, then they go to a like a it's almost like a shootout. The you know next player goes. What, what do you think of those new rules of home run derby tied to the All Star game, Derek? I like that better than. Letting the game end in a tie, for yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of want to see it to get a better feel for it. Uh, I think it'd be a very modified version of the Derby compared to the current format that I think has really taken off the last couple of years. That head-to-head bracket, you know, the timed segments, I think that's really well done. I look forward to watching the Derby just as much as I look forward to actually watching the All-Star game at this point. Yeah, the, the Derby is so much better with the new rules, and it sort of came by accident because I remember it was in Cincinnati, and the only reason why they did it was there was some weather in the area, and they knew they had to go quicker, so they had to time everybody, and so they changed it just for that, and it is so much better. It's, it's exciting. It's engaging, and you don't have players who, you know, if, if you hit 25 homers, well, you keep going. You don't know when to stop. Here, it's, it's easy. You just go until the clock runs out. Uh, really, really love it. Um, any other thoughts on uh, on the home run derby or, or anything in the All Star game? Uh, uh, Pete Alonso didn't win, so we're kind of disappointed here in New York. Well, I I really don't like the fact that it would end in, in a home run derby. It'd be interesting, but I'm such a purist. I don't like that whatsoever. They should just keep playing. They should allow the pitchers to come back in if they want to, or even have position players pitch. I mean, they pitch in the regular season anyway, so why not have the position players pitch then? Yeah, I guess you're you're the purist there. Um, listen, you know, they used to play people in the All-Star game used to play all nine innings. It was a really big deal. Uh, only later uh, in re- most recent years, you, know, you play a couple of innings and then you're out. You get your two at bats, you're done and everybody gets changed. I mean, I remember watching games where like Tony Gwynn and they're not taking Tony Gwynn out. He's going to hit in the 10th inning and he's the starter. Um, and, you know, they really, really used to. Uh, go all out. So it's a little bit different game, but uh, I do like the home run derby. You know what I, what I do think they should do, though, is the Futures game gets absolutely no attention. Um, I, I don't know why. They just they should just extend the whole All-Star weekend, the whole All-Star week, and make it the Wednesday. Make the Futures game on Wednesday and televise it nationally. Like, what? why wouldn't you want to promote your sport? 
Yeah, I think there's been a few different ideas that have floated out there. I think it was Mike Farron from SiriusXM, the MLB channel, suggesting that you could take the minor league All-Star games and play those on the Wednesday after the All-Star game because it's a day without baseball. So the Futures game could fit there. The minor league level All-Star games could fit there. I mean, you could play the Futures game on the Sunday night at the time where you normally play Sunday night baseball on the Sunday going into the break, and at least then it wouldn't have... Uh, the same day as the Celebrity Softball game, which apparently is part of the reason why they've been cutting off the Futures game at seven innings, which is kind of ridiculous. There are a lot of guys that pitched in that game that didn't even get a full inning. I mean, it's really hard to appreciate a young player when they come in and throw three pitches or one pitch. I mean, that's just absurd. Yeah, I mean, that the Celebrity Softball game to me is so idiotic. And uh, I apologize if you enjoy watching it, but they don't even show the whole game. They just show clips of the game, and it, it has no meaning. It's just idiotic. I, 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 I'll I, tell you, I can't even sit through it. I just I just won't. And that's uh, coming from someone who plays a lot of softball, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's terrible. All right, <laughs> on to uh, – Real baseball stuff. Uh, talk a little bit of strategy as we do, as we start each uh, day. Um, you know, uh, there was a tout table for all the, the touts of uh, tout wars asking, what do you do during the All-Star break? So it's half the season. You get a little bit of a break. What, what are you doing, Derek, during these three games? Are you missing the games? Are you taking stock of the year? Are you, now you're, are you going through all your teams and saying, all right, what trades do I have to do? What, what are you doing these days? Yeah, a lot of times I've been doing the things people would do during the All-Star break for the better part of the last four to six weeks. I've been evaluating teams on the fly, trying to make sure that I have good categorical balance, that if I'm in a league where I can make trades, that I've already started to figure out how I'm going to get better in the categories or at the positions where I need to get better. So I think because I'm already on it for the most part, I'm not doing as much in-depth prep during the All-Star break. I use it as a good time to take a little break from the routine as much as I miss having baseball on the Wednesday after the All-Star game, yesterday I literally sat there and was just looking around on YouTube TV. I'm like, there's not a game on right now. What do I watch? And I watched a bunch of game shows instead because apparently that's my, my go-to when there's no baseball. So it's just an opportunity for me to unplug. I think for people that don't get to do this full-time, maybe it is a great opportunity to do the deep dive on your roster, but also the rosters of your competitors too. Because I think part of what makes you a good trader is taking the time to find out what other teams in your league need, figure out how you can help them while also helping yourself. So the break in the action is a really good time to do that. For sure. Ruvain? I actually look and see what I did or didn't do wrong during the draft and see why my team is not doing well or why my team is doing well and how I can sustain it. This is the time of year when, you, at this point, you should know whether or not you're in the race for your, for, your champ, for your league championship. If you don't know it at this point and you still have an opportunity to win, then it's still, you, don't know what's, you don't know if you had a successful draft, you had a successful pre-draft preparation and everything like that. But at, at, you should know if your team is not going to be avail- not going to be well, what did I do wrong? What can I improve? Can I fix it in season? Is there something that I can work on? Should I tra- change my strategy? Should I try something different this year just because I'm 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 out of it because I want to try something different just because. Yeah, I'll take the couple days to look at each team and say, okay, what what trades can I make to help the team? Uh, are there any weird strategies? Do I should I be punting some categories? Should I be throwing all two star pitchers? Just deciding on the game plan you're going to do for the next couple of months. You, you definitely don't want to wait until August 
to, to do this. You know, you should be doing this early July. Uh, so it's a good three-day opportunity. Uh, for me, also, uh, for this particular year, I started doing ATC rest of season projections. Those are numbers are actually over at Fangraphs. They're not up on the site. I gave it into them. They have to somehow get it up in the data system. So hopefully, hopefully in the next couple of days, uh, you'll be able to take a look at ATC rest of season projections. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, Derek, um, I know that you, you take a look at projections quite a bit on your show. You're always uh, looking at stuff. What what sources do you use to evaluate players down the stretch? Are you looking at rest of season projections? Are you looking at other people's rankings? Like, how do you form your own opinions about players rest of season? Yeah, that's the main way I go about it. Rest of season projections. I like using the Fangraphs auction calculator tool because any projections that are available there that have a rest of season set can go into that tool and that just gives you a really good idea of what players value looks like the rest of the way and gives you a good guide for what makes sense trade wise i think there's enough movement in player values from draft day back in march and early april to now where you don't want to make a big mistake because you estimated incorrectly so i think having better guidelines for what fair value looks like, how much some players have moved up, how much others have moved down is really important to have. I've also found this year that the Razball Trade Analyzer is also a pretty good tool you, you can use to drop a couple players into a deal and just get a feel for how balanced the trade would be. So those two tools in conjunction are pretty important to me this time of year. Yeah. And, and for you, Ruvain, question to you is, uh, you know, beginning of the season, we have preseason projections, and even a month into the season, you really do rely on that as well, unless there's a playing time change. Um, at this point in the season, are you more looking at the preseason numbers? Are you looking at rest-of-season projections? Do you look into what they've been doing year-to-date? And, like, what what is your general timeline for, for switching over? Like, do you say, all right, after two months now, I'm switching gears? Like, how do you change what you're basing your value on as you go through a season i think we should stop looking at the projections like around june 1st june or the first week in june and at this point there's no reason to look at the projections because players have changed already teams have adjusted the game plans for different for how you pitch a certain player is completely changing now rookies who are doing good they're going to be adjusted to and we're going to see how they're going to readjust back from how the pitchers are going to now pitch them so i think at this point what you what you see is what you get you're not going to have a guy who's going to find a new salsa and just also be really good Oh, wait, that happened. But still, it doesn't happen that often. It's very, very rare. So what you see is what you get. And I think you can just assess based on how things are going. And you can see, you know what? This guy's trending this way. This guy's trending that way. What I'm looking at, the one, one thing that I look at is projections. If I do look at anything, I'll look at the projection of innings for pitchers because I want to see exactly how many were projected and how where the certain pitchers are because you can learn a lot and you can know how much of a leash you still have left for some of these pitchers. So same question to to you, Derek. But also, you know, if you're gonna, I don't know if you look at recent performance. Like I know for for pitchers, I know Ruvain looks at uh, past three starts a lot. Uh, do you look at a recent per, recent performance, like last week, last month, and and if so, like what is your general guideline for how much how much time you you look at the recent? Like what what's what's the threshold of time? Usually I'm looking at the last 30 days if I want a snapshot and I'm using the stats I see from a time frame like that to then push me toward further research into the player. So if we're talking about a pitcher, we can look at something like Eno Saris's pitching model and see if stuff 
actually got better. We can look at the Baseball Savant player page and just see if the pitch mix changed at all or if there was a velocity increase. And you can obviously do this the other way and see if there was a, a drop in velo or anything that would be uh, maybe an indication that a player is either hurt or you know, just having some other kind of issue that they're working through. So um, I do think recent performance is, is part of, of the calculus for me all the time. I mean, obviously with StatCast too, we're looking at all sorts of different things for hitters and um, the rolling graphs on fan graphs are probably the other thing that I like to look at to get a, a longer view of what's going on because I think it's easy, even when you're looking at a any given month or a half of a season, to think that what you see is more real than it really is. And if you can look at it on a three, four, five-year chart and say, oh, actually, we've we've never seen Justin Turner play this poorly for this long of a stretch. It gives you a better sense of overall decline. And I think that's been a relatively new tool. I know those have been around for a while, but I've been using those more and more this season than I have in years past just to get a, a better sense for for drop-offs and, and possible new levels in the other direction. I think Taylor Ward might be a really good example of a player that's just completely different than he was, or at least than we thought he was when the season began. How, how do you know when a player is who is underperforming is injured? Like, well, uh, Can you get a sense from rolling graphs or maybe luck metrics or something where a player is doing poorly, but it's you know sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's real decline or whether it's literally injury like how do you decipher one from the other if i see something that has changed a lot like velo for a pitcher or uh, for a hitter maybe it'd be a sharp increase in ground ball percentage that's a pretty weird thing to change right if you're a 40 45 percent career ground ball rate hitter and all of a sudden you're hitting the ball on the ground 55 to 60 percent of the time Let's see what's going on. You can go back through player updates. You might find there's a shoulder injury. You might find there's a back injury. You might find there's absolutely nothing on that player's injury ledger whatsoever. Because sometimes guys play even though they're hurt. They don't go on the IL. We don't get much of a report of something being wrong. Uh, other times it's something like a hit by pitch. And again, not an IL stint. Maybe not even time missed. And suddenly you kind of see, oh wait, ever since that guy got hit in the hand by that pitch, you know, the the performance is just down. And then you can sort of say, okay, what normally happens? Guys get hit in the hand, takes a few weeks to heal. Maybe the all-star break is actually the perfect opportunity for a player who's dealing with a nagging injury like that to shake it off because they're not out there for a few days taking an injury and kind of making it worse by continuing to play through it. Yeah, what do you do, Ravain? Well, it's very hard to tell because most players do play through it. We found out last year that Pete Alonso was playing through an injured wrist. He got hit by a pitch and he played through it, didn't go on the I.L. We waited to go on the I.L. Then he finally went on the I.L. So it's very hard to tell because a lot of the, a lot of, especially the elite players, they want to be out there. They want to play. They have the hunger. They want to do it. It's just so hard to tell. You can Maybe you can tell from different um, different ways they go about doing what they're doing, whether it's whether they're changing their mechanics a little bit. Maybe their swing is a little bit different. Maybe they're more aggressive at the plate because they they want to be aggressive because they can't you know stay at the plate for a long time because they, it hurts when they swing. There can be many different things. It's just so hard to tell. The only way you really know is if they eventually get put on the IL. And by that point, it's already too late. Yeah, I think the key word is uh, sharp is that when you see a player profile and you see his components and what he's doing and uh, the stat cast numbers and, and you know, the barrel rate and any, any kind, of, kind of component, and all of a sudden it's a sh very sharply different. You mentioned ground ball rate. Well, if a player is 40%, 40%, all of a sudden it's 60%. Anything sharp 
is always an indication that something's not right. When you have a decline, it usually goes up a little bit. There's a trend, right? Trend versus sharpness will give you a little bit of a, a bifurcation. So that's something always to take a look at. Unfortunately, it's it's all a manual process to look at, right? You got to do a deep dive on everyone. If you want to find out, there's no one number or, or one source that you can look. You actually have to go investigate and look at all of his stuff. What did he do before? What did he do after? And it's a little bit of research. Uh, and, of course, even if after you do all that, you may or may not be right. I mean, it, it might be decline where you think it's an injury or vice versa. Uh, you, you can't always get it right, but uh, those are some tools to help you with it. And obviously, if you can identify it properly, you can know whether to invest in a guy or just to sell or to buy and so on and so forth. All right, so uh, on this show, we're going to be going through the NL West. It's our last of our Around the Major League Baseball Divisions episodes. So, uh, Derek, I know that you're not exactly an NL West fan. You just live there now. But, hey, figured you can uh, come and help us with that. Sure, happy to help. All right, uh, let's start with the Diamondbacks. Uh, a couple of exciting players coming along the way. Uh, one of them is Corbin Carroll. Um, he just started AAA so far in his first 15 at-bats. Two homers, three stolen bases, batting 267. So, so far, so good for him. Uh, I kind of think Corbin Carroll, if the team really needed him, he could be up this year. But the question is, will he be? He's certainly a dynasty gold. Uh, he could be up next year. Well, what's your take on when the Dimebacks are going to bring him up, and what's the probability that he'll be up this year? I think it's more likely than not we see him opening day of 2023. He's very young for the level, and he missed most of last season with a major injury. And had that not happened, Corbin Carroll might be a big leaguer right now. But I think just based on the trajectory of this team, they can reasonably afford to say, let's just see how he does with a half season at Reno. He's probably going to put up ridiculous numbers there. It's a very hitter-friendly league, but that's one of the most hitter-friendly environments in that hitter-friendly league. There's power, there's speed, there's a very good understanding of the strike zone. I think the only thing that I'm even remotely worried about in the short term is that the K-rate could jump once he eventually does become a big leaguer. But Corbin Carroll, to me, looks like the kind of guy that's going to be a 30-30 player at his peak. So we're talking about an early first-round fantasy pick at his peak, and that could be sooner than you think. I mean, that's that type of talent I think we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Uh, what's your take, Ruvain? Uh, I, I tend to agree. I think that he won't be up till next year. Yeah, I don't think he'll be up till next year. I think he's going to be similar to what happened to Bobby Witt Jr. this year, uh, last year. I think that he's he's going to be spend the rest of the year. He's going to put up these amazing numbers. We're going to see all these videos on Twitter that he's really, really good. And then he's going to get super hyped in, if, if, in a redraft thing, in the redraft leagues, and he's going to go very expensive just like Bobby Witt did. Now, exactly what Derek said. He was injured last year, and 2020, there was almost no minor league system. So they, he needs some seasoning. Some of these rookies are getting, being brought up too soon, a la, I think, uh, 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 Jared Kalanick, and I think that having this full year of major league ball under his, I mean, minor league ball under his belt will suit him much better for next year, and the Diamondbacks have no reason to start his clock yet, so I think he is not going to be brought up this year, but if he's available on the wa on the waiver wire, and you have keepers, and he's out there, take him now so you can keep him for next year. Yeah, so I want to use use him to really talk a little bit of strategy. Um, one is the the this year strategy, and one is what's he going to be in the draft for next year. So in terms of this year, 
Um, you know, being that we all think that he's probably going to not be up, there's always a chance. You know, maybe there's a couple of injuries or who the heck knows. Uh, maybe they trade people and they need a spot. Who knows? Um, what is the strategy of of picking him up? Because, you know, if you're in a shallow 10-team league on the waiver wire, even if he's available, it just doesn't make sense to pick him up. It's too shallow. You know, the probability of him coming up is not enough expected value. Is there a league deep enough uh, that people would play in in a home league right now that you really feel that, hey, you got an empty bench spot, Corbin Carroll, if up, is going to be fantastic. Just throw a buck on him, put him on your bench, and if you if he doesn't come up, he doesn't come up, you'll drop him September 10th. Is there a strategy to actually picking him up right now, Derek? I think for NL-only leagues, he's probably already rostered in most competitive NL-only leagues, but you have to just consider the possibility that if he does get opportunities for maybe the final six to eight weeks of the season, I mean, that's really pushing it. That's basically the scenario you outlined where they trade David Peralta and say, all right, it's Corbin Carroll time. It still seems very unlikely, but in the unlikely event that it happens, the payoff in a format like that is massive because Corbin Carroll could come up, strike out a third of the time, and still, just because of the power-speed combo and the counting stats, be much better than the typical player you're going to find on the wire in an NL-only league two weeks from now. So I think in leagues that deep, it makes sense to stash him. The The harder thing, I think, is to decide if you play in a league where, let's just say it's a 12-team league and every team can keep six players. And it's not about minor leaguers at all. It's just any six players you want. If we think Corbin Carroll is going to be treated like Bobby Witt Jr. was this draft season, is it worth it, depending on your keeper situation, to pick Cor Corbin, Corbin Carroll up now, keep him as your sixth keeper, and hopefully have him find success quickly? And then obviously he's one of your core six keepers beyond this season as well. I think those are the leagues where I think you have a, a more difficult decision to make. Right. And and that also begs the question for, will he be overdrafted in 2023? You know, we saw where Bobby Witt was drafted. He, I don't know if he returned the value that he was drafted in. He certainly kept up the steals part, maybe not enough the power. But I, I, I think you, you were somewhat satisfied by buying him this year. Uh, O'Neill Cruz, you weren't because he wasn't up. But do you think that in 2023 drafts, Derek, do you think that he's going to be overvalued? Are people just going to say, oh, my God, he's probably going to be up and he's going to be stellar and let's pick him in the seventh round? Uh, are, are you going to be picking him in the seventh round? Like, what, what's your take on what's going to happen and what you would do for the drafts? I wasn't in on wit at the price this year because I thought there would be more of a strikeout problem all season long. And I think I'm, at least today, in late July, I think I was wrong. I mean, I think the the process behind not wanting to take wit there was that I saw other hitters that I felt were very likely to hit their $20 projections. And I thought wit, while he could hit it and could exceed it, also had more downside. So I passed because of that. And I think based on the Fangraphs calculator to this point, wit's been the fifth most valuable shortstop in the pool. Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson, Francisco Lindor, and Tommy Edmond, shortstop eligible as well, are the four that are ahead of him. Edmond's barely ahead. So the position's been a little bit of a disappointment overall. Injuries have been a factor in that. And I would say that after a slow start, Witt has definitely been more on the exceeded expectation side. So I've been wrong so far. I don't know if that means I'm going to change my process. And each player is unique, too. So I think if Carroll comes through AAA and is even more productive as a hitter than Witt was at the same level and he's doing it with a lower K rate, 
I might be more inclined to take the chance on Corbin Carroll if the prices are similar. Yeah, Witt is uh, worth about $27 a season to date, and it's a lot because of his uh, his steals. I mean, the power is, okay, he's hit 13 homers, but 17 steals really plays. Not a great batting average, but overall in a rotisserie format, I think people are satisfied. Ruvena, what about you? Do you think that Carroll's going to be drafted in a very similar position, and do you think that you're going to be picking him up at that part? Do you think that the market's overdrafting him? What are your thoughts? I think I probably would go after him just because of what Bobby Witt does. Because if I can get Corbin Carroll and he can be a top 30 or 40 outfielder right out of the bat, I mean, this is this is so similar. I mean, I, it, okay, if you, if you burn me once and you'll go after Bobby Witt this year and he's worth so much and he's worth more than a whole, a whole position that we thought was so deep. We thought, we thought the middle infield was so deep this year. I mean, don't you think the people who took uh, Fernando Tatis, even though he was injured, wouldn't they have rather taken Bobby Witt and spent more money there? I mean, it, there's so many places where you it's it's crazy to think that I'm going to go after a rookie next year. I usually don't go after rookies. Usually in the draft, I don't go after rookies because they have so little return on investment, especially recently because they, they, they just don't perform up to what they're, what they're capable of. And Bobby Witt, if he had a better lineup, do you know how much more productive he'll be? And do you know how much better he'll probably be once um, Salvador Perez comes back? His value is going to be through the roof. Same thing with Corbin Carroll. He's going to have a year of Al- of Alec Thomas with him. Alec Thomas has been performing very well. Not he's, He hasn't been... It seems like the pitchers haven't yet adjusted to him completely. And having both of those guys in the outfield, that's a very good one-two tandem to have. Yeah, speaking of Alec Thomas, uh, Derek, do you think the league will will figure him out? I mean, so far he's hit seven homers, four stolen bases, uh, two fifty, pretty decent season, nothing spectacular. Um, do you think that he will hit a wall and just plummet, or do you think that this is a good level that he can continue uh, going forward? Yeah, I think this combination of power and speed is reasonable because you're looking at high teens, maybe low twenties homers and. 10 to 15 steals, maybe, depending on where the OBP falls. I mean, it's not a surprise that in his first exposure to big league pitching, he's walking a lot less than he did throughout his time in the minors, but he's still walking a little bit. And the strikeout rate hasn't gone through the roof. I mean, to me, that's a that's a pretty big success. I think when a player comes up, especially a young rookie, someone who's 21, 22 years old, and they don't fall on their face, if they're just sort of a, a league average player, if you look at the WRC Plus and you see something even above 90, like 10% worse than league average, that's actually not bad for a rookie. And if you look at the underlying skills and you like those and you see a player like Thomas who has a lot of ways to make value, I, I could see him actually being a little bit underrated potentially going into next season, depending on, of course, what happens in the final two months and change. Yeah, I think your points are excellent there. Uh, definitely because of his power-speed blend, I mean, anytime you hit, you're going to have 10 stolen bases, it's going to be valuable this year. And, you know, uh, upwards of 20 homers, that does it. Uh, that could be. Do you think that there's a such thing as a sophomore slump? Like, will he hit that wall next year? And, uh-oh, the league's figured him out. Is that a real thing in your mind? Um, not in a vacuum. I mean, I, I guess the the way I like to think about what people might call a sophomore slump is that hitters and pitchers are always forced to adjust teams figure out ways to have success against young players and young players that are more dynamic or young players that are well coached are going to have more tools they can lean on to make those adjustments. And I think figuring out who makes adjustments quickly is actually one of the more difficult parts of of being an analyst. I think it's just, especially when you're talking about a young hitter, 
if the hole in someone's approach can be exploited consistently by big league pitching, then it depends on what is that problem? Is it high fastballs? Is it breaking balls out of the zone? I think there's a, a varying level of an ability to adjust depending on the scope of that problem. If you can't hit big league velocity upon arrival, I don't know how much you can do in most cases to start hitting top end velocity even with more time in the league. Yeah. Uh, just before we go on to the next team, um, you know, you mentioned uh, David Peralta. Let's start with Ruvain on this. Um, you know, who, who do you think is going to be traded uh, and, and who has fantasy relevance? Uh, David Peralta, I think, is uh, easily the most likely. Maybe some of the bullpen arms, Melanson, Kennedy. Uh, what do you think, Ruvain? I think Peralta will be traded because he's a left-handed hitter. He plays the outfield, and a lot of teams are actually looking for that. Um, I think Melanson will probably be traded, but I don't think he's going to have that much value because I don't think he's going to be the closer. I, I think he's gonna just going to be a setup man wherever he goes. Um, another guy who I think is going to be traded, not really that much fantasy value, but that's Caleb Smith. He's a power lefty, and a lot of teams look for lefties, especially at the trade deadline, and right, and the Diamondbacks aren't going anywhere right now, and Caleb Smith is getting up there in age. He's like, I think he's 30 or 31, so I think he, another guy who'll be traded. Um, listen, if Peralta's traded, you may see a guy like Seth Beer come up and, and have him play the outfield a little bit, so you may get more playing time like that. Um, but any, I think any guy in the bullpen is po- is a possibility for trade. I don't think anyone's off limits for the Diamondback team, and I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if anyone gets traded. Anyone to add, Derek? Yeah, whole pen might be going. I'm kind of curious if they if they're not going to call up Carroll. You know, who do they call up to replace that spot on the roster when Peralta goes? I think Beers among the names that you, you always think about. I think Cooper Hummel has been kind of interesting for deeper leagues. I'd just be curious to see what would happen if he got more playing time. So it's probably going to be more like an organizational filler type, for lack of a better description, as opposed to a prospect. And, and sometimes those players could be surprisingly productive for us in, in short stints. Let's talk San Francisco Giants. Let's start with Joey Bart. Uh, high expectations for the future. He's done fairly well since he came back up. Uh, he's batting two seventy six with two homers in the 32 plate appearances since coming back up. Uh, he is only batting ninth most days. I always like to look where somebody batting in the lineup. That's not fantastic. But, uh, hey, you know, we'll take it. Uh, is he the catcher of the future in your mind, Derek? What are your expectations for him for the rest of this year and uh, in the future? I think he's probably always going to be a high-volume swing-and-miss sort of guy that when he connects, gets to the power that we're looking for. And I think at the catcher position, we're used to this. I mean, I think there's probably a Mike Zanino-type floor in terms of what he can accomplish. I think generally he's regarded as a good defender and that drives playing time. But you're always going to look at him and say, yeah, he might hit 210 and it it might be a costly way to get to 20 home run power. I do like what he's done since coming back up from Sacramento. The K rate so far for the season has been really high, 43.6%, but I think it's closer to 33% since that demotion. You look at some of the decisions on, on swinging at pitches outside the zone. It's not bad. Um, and the hard hit rate is consistently good. 48.3% is a hard hit rate you can definitely get excited about. So catcher of the future is still up in the air, but having watched this team a bit in recent weeks especially, it does seem like Bart is starting to embrace more of a leadership role on the club, which, again, I think bodes well for his playing time and perhaps for the organization's confidence in him. So really curious to see what they do at the deadline because they could be among the teams that trades for Wilson Contreras if he's on the move. 
And if that were to happen, of course, Bart's playing time would take a major hit in the short term unless he was going back the other way in that trade. Yeah, he's certainly not a superstar. He's walking 13% of the time this year, which is actually pretty good. So the strikeout rate up, but also the walk rate up. Uh, not always not always a good thing to go in tandem there. Uh, you like to see one or the other. Uh, Ruvain, what are your thoughts on Bart? I think he is a catcher of the future, but he's also learning how to catch a major league pitching staff. So a lot of catchers, when they first come up, especially prospects, they don't do well hitting-wise the first couple of years, and they want to just get, they want the, the organization wants them to get to know how to catch a pitcher, how to catch a major league staff. And the way the, the way the Giants are analytically inclined, there's so much for them to do there that I, I think he's maybe just being overwhelmed with the catching side a little bit more and putting a, the hitting to the back. I think the hitting will come. I think it may not be this year he may even lose uh hitting uh playing time if they do get wilson Contreras, which is a very good possibility um and i do think that he is the catcher of the future but i think his hitting prowess will probably be shown in like year two or three what's your take derek on uh the fantasy use of giants hitters so more than any team i'd say even more than tampa bay believe it or not they are straight platooning guys like if you go on to roster resource um, and roster resource will generally indicate whether a guy is on a platoon or not. Uh, half the lineup is a platoon. Like we're talking, you know, Lamonte Wade, he's a lefty. Jock Peterson, a lefty. Yastrzemski is a lefty. But then there's the righties, Slater, Yamin Mercedes, Darren Ruff. And they're literally just, if there's a lefty pitcher in the mound, that's one. If there's a righty pitcher in the mound, there's the other. Um, obviously, this impacts the use of fantasy. Does, does this limit... Uh, rostering giants for you because there are some really skilled hitters on the team how do you deal with using the the giants hitters in fantasy knowing that they're just platooning the heck out of every single person generally i try to limit the use of these players to really deep leagues mostly nl only leagues there's always a few exceptions because the way a roster is built you just can't quite mix and match at every single spot but i would agree with you i think they do it as well as any team in the league and about as often as any team in the league. And I think Evan Longoria and Wilmer Flores are the two guys that I probably worry about the least right now. Jock Peterson is kind of close to that level, but still, even in the games where he doesn't start because they're facing a lefty, they're going to get his bat in there. He's going to come into the game later in the game, maybe get two plate appearances, depending on how early that is. So you do have to keep that in mind. It's not it's not a strict, like, doesn't play at all that day, but it is play less than other similarly skilled players. So really, I'm always looking for teams that can't uh, afford to mix and match with certain guys. And even like Brandon Crawford, because of his age, he doesn't have a steady platoon partner, but I think they do try to take a little bit of a, a workload off of his legs. And because of defensive versatility, or even in some cases, not worrying that much about the quality of their defense, the Giants do uh, chip away at some playing time for some of their older players that way. Yeah, and I mean, uh, even the catcher. I mean, the catcher doesn't get platoon. They just, you know, share time. So literally everybody is doing it. Ruvain, uh, for, for, for that, um, it seems to me that for Giants, they are somewhat streamable. Or when you're looking to make a waiver wire pickups for a league, especially uh, even like NFBC formats where you can change lineups twice a week, uh, are the Giants a source that you're looking, okay, who's on the mound this week? Are they facing left, a lot of lefties, a lot of righties? Are you looking at Giants for possible streaming options based on matchups? Is that a consideration for you? Of course I am because the Giants know what they're doing. It's, they've 
They've figured it out. They know how to get these players, how to get the maximum out of these players. The one player that I, that I really look at, and I was actually going to mention him in the waiver wire later today, was Austin Slater. Because Austin Slater, he's part of the he's part of the platoon, but he's recently he's batting 455 because they're putting him in the correct situations where to hit. He's also got three stolen bases. So he's a little different than the other platoon guys because he actually steals bases. He has six stolen bases on the year, five homers and six and six stolen bases. You have that type of, of profile. That, pl- that profile, even with the low amount of playing time, it still stands out among a lot of the waiver wise, especially in deeper leagues, because you're not going to get that elsewhere. Yeah, and Slater also is different in that he leads off. So, you know, even if he's losing a game here and there, but he's batting leadoff, so he's going to get more at-bats than a lot of others. Um, I don't think the Giants are going to really contend for the division this year. Or maybe you do, Derek. I don't know. Do you think that they can hang on to a wild-card spot? They're five games over five hundred. Um, obviously, they were one of the, be- the best team in baseball last year uh, with that record even better than the jo- even better than the Dodgers. But are they going to hang on to a wild-card spot? According to fan graphs, it's 50-50 on making the playoffs. Yeah, I think they are on the short list of teams where the next – 10 days really shapes what they decide to do at the deadline. You know, if playoff odds go up, they can become buyers. If they fall, they could move a few pieces. It's a weird team because they've got a handful of guys on the wrong side of 30 that you could see them flipping pretty easily. Um, you know, obviously Camilo Doval is their, their primary closer there, but Dominic Leone actually has looked really good this year. Tyler Rogers brings that kind of unique look from the right side. John Brebia, like, Plenty of teams need relievers, right? So if you could flip relievers for even A-ball prospects, that might be something the Giants decide to do because they can unearth more veterans like that in the offseason. It seems to be a skill that they have as a front office. So I'm really curious to see what happens in these next few weeks. I wonder if they'd even consider moving Carlos Rodon if things break down enough between now and that August 2nd trade deadline. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I doubt they're sellers. And if they are, I mean, who, who are you going to move? Rodon? Uh, there's... Just him, maybe. Um, buyers, I, I tend to think that the Giants are, are going to try to win. They're interested in filling up seats. and, and it, Every team is, fill, is interested in that, but their owner is especially interested in filling up seats. So I have to imagine they're going to be buyers. And uh, yes, obviously, if they you know lose the next 10 games and they fall out of it, that's something else. But I have to imagine that they're going to they're gonna make a push for something, even if just to keep pace, right? If, if right now, according to Fangraphs, they're 50% to make the playoffs and it doesn't fall that much there, I think because other teams are going to make trades and better themselves, don't they feel they have to, right? I, I, are, do you think that they're going to make a trade to, 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 to acquire players, Ruve? A hundred percent. They're they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to make the playoffs, but I think they want to try to get past the Dodgers. I think that's that's the sticking point. When they lost to the Dodgers last year, they, it's it, you you can't be in San, you can't be a San Francisco Giant fan and love the fact that you let the Dodgers keep winning every year. You just can't. So I think the Giants are going to make a big splash. I actually think that you know right now the Vegas odds is that Soto Juan Soto is going to go to the Mets. I think the Giants are a dark horse because, A, they have the money and they have an owner who's willing to pay for it. They wanted Bryce Harper and they could have got him before. And, B, they have a spot for him. He, there's there's no one—he he, he can be the franchise player because Buster Posey's gone. He would be the franchise player. He would be the perfect perfect fit, and he'd be the perfect antithesis to whatever the Dodgers do. So uh, moving on to the San Diego Padres, uh, I actually want to start with something that uh, was talked on the Under the Radar podcast this week. 
First of all, I want to thank you, Derek, for inviting me on the show to fill in for Nando. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, and we talked about Juan Soto being traded, and I think we came to a conclusion with you, me, and, and Ian. I think Ian was the one who suggested it, that the Padres could be a nice real, realistic landing sp- uh, point for Soto, that they probably have the players in package. And we noted that the Mets may be a little bit less in that we're, they're still trying to form their organization and build up the, the farm and all that. Funny, uh, I just saw a tweet from Jonathan Papelbon who has said, oh, uh, from from their agent, Soto wants to come to the Mets. Uh, he, he's going to try to make it work in the Mets, and they're going to try to figure out something. Uh, wh- where where do you see this all playing out, and do you think the Padres are a good fit? Yeah, I think the Padres are a great fit as a trade partner for the Nationals because if you're the Nationals, if you're in Mike Rizzo's position, and you're going to trade a player who is rightfully compared to Ted Williams, which is just an absurd thing to say, but true you have to get a lot of talent back and you need a lot of that talent to be near major league ready or currently in the major leagues and i think the padres hit that sweet spot where they have two great prospects in the big leagues right now in cj abrams and mckenzie gore and we know with tatis working his way back from injury that abrams is probably going to become an extra player on this roster in the next couple of weeks we know with gore between innings concerns and the rotation depth that they have he might be more expendable for San Diego than he'd be for a lot of other teams, right? So those two guys could be the headliners. You could maybe even think about adding Robert Hassel the third in that package. And I think you could also start to figure out a way to possibly fix some of the money problems the Padres are having. They're right in the range of the luxury tax. If you are a rebuilding team like the Nationals, you can actually take some salary back as part of a trade, be that Eric Hosmer or Will Myers or whoever that ends up being. That affords the Padres the flexibility they need to try and chase down the Dodgers. I would say just as much as the Giants want to chase down the Dodgers, A.J. Preller and the Padres want that too. And they've been able to stay afloat without Tatis to this point. You bring him back and you make an impact trade like that, adding one of the absolute best offensive players in the game. You have him through 2024, so it's not a rental. And maybe you've actually got a shot of extending him. And then you've got this three-player core that's as good as any three position players you can put together in the entire league. And the key then becomes making sure you can replenish your farm system enough uh, to not go the way of a team like the Angels. But I think the Padres have shown us they have the resources in place to find a lot of young talent, right? They're in that group where they can actually afford to give up a lot of young players and still compete in the long run. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, Machado, Tatis, Soto, that is some some middle of the lineup there. I, I actually I actually heard an interesting thing on a Padre podcast. They were thinking about trading for Juan Soto, not signing to a long deal, seeing how this year plays out, and then train him again in the offseason to restock their farm system. Just so that <laughs> meaning just having Juan Soto for this year for the playoff run, then trade him to another team and restock their farm system. That's not a crazy idea because just because you're trading for him, you still have two more years of control of Juan Soto. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sign him. He's going to want a big contract, but that doesn't mean you have to sign him. Do you think, Derek, that the trade value is for for Soto or for others in general is higher at the trade deadline or is it higher in the offseason? Like if, if the Nationals want to capitalize and get the most value, they certainly don't need to do it in the middle of the season, right? I mean, they, they're not playing for this year anyways. You know, they're they're going to play for next year. If they trade it in the offseason, it's the same for them as at the deadline. Where do you think the value is higher? Is it the deadline or is it in the offseason? 
I think offseason tends to get you more value in a trade, but I think Soto is an exception. Like I, I think for the last, probably the last 10 trade deadlines, it's been better to be a buyer in terms of what you give up in terms of long-term value versus the value you get even for rental players. I think it's been much better to be in the buyer position. I think Soto is a bit of a unicorn because players this good with, with control left are rarely available. So I think anytime you put a player like Juan Soto on the block, anyone and everyone is going to go to the mat trying to come up with the best possible offer, right? You're getting a legitimate bidding war regardless of timing. But generally, I think it's still better to be in a trading four players position than a trading players away position at the deadline in season. Let's talk about Fernando Tatis. Um, obviously, whoever bought him in the first round is not that thrilled this year. Um, let's go to Ruvain first. What is Tatis's injury status? Well, he's still hurt. Um, he's gonna he's gonna be out for still a while. They did a, a, the most recent scan was for of his wrist was said to be okay. He's progressed to a hitting progression, but that doesn't mean that he's gonna be ready for baseball anytime soon. He's, I think he's still at least a good four weeks away, four to five weeks. Because remember, he didn't have a spring training. He has to get the spring training under his belt also. So I think he's a good four to five weeks away, and that's if even if he comes back at all. Because I, the way things are going, he's sounding like he's having a, I hate to say this, but having a Jacob deGrom-type season where he, he when you, whenever you think he's going to start going and start going, there's either not, not, not necessarily a setback, but something holding him back. And if something's holding him back... I, he needs to get ramped up. He needs to have game situation. He needs to hit off a tee, which he hasn't done yet. He has so much to, so much progression to do. And then what about playing the field? Are they going to have him just as a DH? Are they going to put him in the outfield? Is he going to get reps in the outfield, get reps at shortstop? There's so many question marks about him. I, I'm, if, I didn't draft him at all. I, I had no interest in drafting him just because of the fact that I knew he, that he, had, he had this injury and he didn't tell anybody about it until the, literally the, almost the last second possible until he got you know, physical and everything like that. So I'm really nervous about him playing this year if he comes back if he plays you may get a month and a half because listen it's it's already when we're taping this it's july 21st you can how much time is left in the baseball season another two and a half months he hasn't done anything baseball related yet maybe he just started the hitting he's not going to come back for at least another four or five weeks in my opinion yeah i still don't know why he hasn't gone for that shoulder surgery yet um it is weird to me uh you know yeah i it, to me, Tatis is chronic. The injuries are chronic at this point. You know, it's uh, I, I'd very, very heavily weight the risk of injury if I'm looking next year and saying, okay, I need a discount to roster him. It's to me, it's chronic already. Uh, for this season, though, Derek, what does a Fernando Tatis fantasy trade look like? If like, let's say you have him and he's on your IL, um, you know, you have him on the roster. What do you think you can actually get for him in return in a trade? Yeah, if you're thinking about it in the timetable that Ruvain outlined, which I think is reasonable, I mean, you're probably getting a maximum of six weeks worth of games. Is he playing every day in our minds if he gets back with six weeks to go? Maybe close to it. I think you're probably looking at the equivalent of sixth or seventh round value, which is probably not helpful without actual names on it. But I mean, if you're thinking about shortstops in a straight-up like one-for-one trade, would you rather have Tatis for the rest of the season or Carlos Correa? Like for me, it's pretty easily Carlos Correa. He's healthy right now, even though his ceiling is nowhere close to what Tatis's is. 
What about, uh, and you, by the way, you can also trade him for an outfielder. He's outfielder eligible. What about a guy like Nick Castellanos, who's having a down year? Uh, is, is uh, According to the ATC rest of season projections, they project for almost the same dollar amount rest of season. Castellanos, 255 at-bats. Tatis, 150 at-bats. But um, obviously Tatis is better on a per-at-bat basis. Is that something that you think could pull off a struggling Castellanos for a Tatis to come back late? I think you could get someone to do that, and I think your willingness to make that move, if you're the person who currently has Tatis on your roster, it probably depends on what's happening with your team right now. You know, If you're in a head-to-head league and you're doing well and you're definitely going to the playoffs and you want the best possible roster for your matchups in September, you might hold Tatis in that situation. If you're in a Roto League where this lost time is really hurting you because the drop from Tatis to whoever you're throwing out there right now, Connor Joe, that's just a filler outfielder. The upgrade to Nick Castellanos is probably worth doing as soon as you can possibly do it. So I, I think that's the other, that's the other wrinkle. You know, if you have Tatis and you've somehow weathered the storm to this point, you may decide that it's worth waiting it out. But I think generally that's like the, the right level value wise, what you'd be looking for in a return. Nick Castellanos sounds right. Yeah, and I think that it's more of a situation question than a value question of players. Because uh, you know, you mentioned head-to-head playoffs. If you're a team that is just on the outside of making the playoffs and you have Tatis on your roster, I think you, you, you're not going to have any production of him the next month, but you need that production. And a team that's in first place, they probably want Tatis to hold. Oh, I'll, I'll hold Tatis. I'll get him the playoffs. You can see it. I can see a trade in that, situ- in that situation where – okay, I'm going to trade you a, a, a Tatis who's doing nothing because I need to get in the playoffs, um, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a lesser player value-wise, but I need the production now. Like, Tatis's value is all backloaded. I need somebody who has the value now. So I can see in certain scenarios where time is a matter, um, that forcing a trade of Tatis, right? I, I think that that's really the situation that you're looking for. And, and and if you're in, let's say, 8th or ninth place in a redraft league and you want to make a difference, you want to take that risk. You want to trade that Cassianos for Tatis just in case he can give you that extra push at the end. Because if you're so far behind, you want to add, we always say this, you want to add on more risk to try to get more reward. And this is definitely more risk, especially because it, if Tatis can even play three quarters of the games that he plays, the way Cassianos is struggling, you know, I'm sure if you have Castellanos on your bench, you've probably been tempted to bench him a couple of times. And if you're willing to do that, then you should be willing to trade for Tatis. Yeah, in in a roto league, you can tra- if you have if you're out of the money and you have someone of a higher value, you can trade him because Tatis has the more upside. Of course, you know it's all about it's all about playing time. But I, I think that the playoff situation is really where you're going to see a Tatis trade. You mentioned Connor Joe, and let's go to the Colorado Rockies. Connor Joe looks really good early on. He had 129 WRC plus in March and April. Went down to 80 in May. He bounced back in June with a 120 and back down to 76 in July. Um, his barrel rate is a measly 4%, even with Colorado. His ground ball rate has gone up from 33 to 44% this year. What are your expectations for Connor Joe? And uh, what formats, Derek, do you think that he should be rostered in fantasy? Oh, I think he's really the kind of guy I would like to have in NL only, and I don't really want to have in mixed leagues because, like many Colorado hitters, the power is just not where you 
trust it outside of Coors, and it's weird. Of the five home runs he's hit this year, four have come on the road. I think that's just a fluke. I just think this is maybe the the classic example of a player who is constantly making adjustments because of the stark contrast between his home park and the road, or even coming back home and, and just seeing how things move so differently, how pitches move differently between those environments. So I think if you put Connor Joe in a non-Colorado situation, I would expect a decent average, a good OBP, 10 to 12 home runs, and counting stats that really ride on where he hits in the order. I think in Colorado, maybe you can get a few extra homers, but I just think it's going to be a really bumpy road throughout the second half, uh, even if you believe in that baseline set of numbers I'm putting out there. Your thoughts, Ruben? Connor Joe, he's he's an enigma. He's I, he you when you had him early in the year, you couldn't not play him, and now you have to put him on your bench. His last home run, June seventh. He I, I did a deep dive on him. He's batting three ninety one in ninety two at bats with no shift against him. With a shift against him, he's batting two ninety one. So it's a hundred point difference. His K rate has gone up from June and July. His BABIP has changed 150 points down from June and July. So he's been a little bit unlucky, but if you're playing in Colorado and you haven't hit a home run since June, he's a guy that if you have him on your roster, he should be the, the, the last guy on your roster and you should be willing to drop him for almost anyone on the waiver wire. The thing is that the Rockies are actually putting him in every single day in the leadoff spot. I mean, they're just continuing to roll with him. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Uh, I think that mono leagues you're going to be rostering him because he's leading off, and 15 team mixed leagues, maybe depending upon how bad your injuries are. Um, he he should he he should be rostered. I don't know if he should play him, but he should be rostered in 15 team mixed. I think um, playing. I think it really depends on matchups and stuff like that. Anything deeper, he should be rostered. Um, you know, the Rockies have an interesting situation with their catchers. They have huge home road splits. Uh, Elias Diaz, he's batting 252 at home, 204 on the road. Um, Servant, Brian Servant is batting 313 at home, 154 away. Uh, his WRC plus, look at the difference, 146 at home. So he's a monster at home. And I kid you not, five. Five away. That means he's ninety-five percent worse than the average player away. Uh, question is, Derek, in, in terms of fantasy play, is streaming Rockies catchers a viable uh, situation when you see they're playing home? Like uh, I know in in certain leagues, depends upon your injuries and who you have there. Or definitely in one catcher shallow leagues, I'm always looking to stream. Uh, are these two? decent options to stream in let's say a 15 team or 12 to 15 team mixed league maybe in a 15 but i think they're sharing the role in a way that doesn't really make them even useful streamers i think if this playing time tilted more in one favor then we'd be looking at a situation where you could use them more often so i've been staying away for the most part outside of mono leagues i mean i think those those splits are are probably even more extreme than they'll end up being at the end of the season just because we're dealing with three-ish months worth of playing time. I don't think Servant was even on the big league roster to start the year. So um, not much separating these two guys right now. I think I like Diaz just a little bit more from a core skills perspective. Yeah, two two catcher leagues that are 15-team mixed and deeper. Uh, I, I, I've been streaming, so I, I, I've, I've had weeks where I've picked them up and let's go ahead and play them. 
Uh, that's about the limit. Uh, your thoughts, Ruben? Well, he's so bad. Servin is so bad that we actually have him on our NFBC team, and we actually drop. We actually still have him, but we picked up a Salvador Perez to sit on our bench just to wait because we know how bad Servin is. Um, you can stream him if it's a if it's a daily league. Just see who's who's in the lineup that day, and, and just keep you know churning the churning that way because that would be great. But I think in the long run, if for a weekly league, there's it's. I don't think they're rosterable. I, th- I think there are better options out there. And before we talk more about the Rockies, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Well, continuing to talk about the Rockies, we're going to talk about the Rockies pitching staff now. So my trivia this week is a little bit different than what I normally do. I'm going to name a relief. I'm going to name a starting pitcher, and you're going to tell me if they have a higher WAR, according to Fangraphs as of today, if they have a higher WAR than the entire Rockies bullpen combined. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm gonna name a pitcher and tell me if they've higher war than the entire Rockies bullpen combined. Let's start with Logan Webb. Yeah, yes, I think Webb's war is higher. Uh, I'll go with yes. And the answer is yes. Martin Perez. Also a yes. Yeah, he's a yes. That's a yes. Garrett Cole. Probably still a yes, even though that feels tricky to me for some reason. Yeah, I feel like you're trying to trick us, but I'll stay. I'll stay with yes. You're right. I'm trying to trick you. It's actually lower than the Rockies combined bullpen. <laughs> Tarek, Tarek Skubal. Skubal, I think is is over that number too. So I'll I'll say slight over on Skubal because he started off the season pitching really well. I'll also go with yes. Yes, well, Scoobal actually raised his war point one today with his win. Um, and just to give you an example, to, uh, to tell you what's going on with them, Logan Webb, 2.5 war. Martin Perez, 2.4 war. Tarek Scoobal is now at 2.5. Garrett Cole, 2.2, which means the Rockies' bullpen combined war for this year is 2.3. Yikes. That is horrible. That is really bad. That's one of the lowest bullpen wars in all of baseball. I don't know how you can roster any of these guys. I don't know how any any team in the playoff hunt can even want one of these guys in the trade. So, Derek, do you think anyone, any pitcher on the Rockies, starter or reliever, are worth rostering for the end of the year? Generally, no. Um, I, I think you can get away with using some of their starters on the road in certain spots. So if, if you want to talk... You know, Herman Marquez into your lineup in a pitcher-friendly environment. I'm not going to talk you out of it. Maybe Chad Cool in a handful of spots. I wonder if any of their depth arms end up getting moved, and if that happens, then maybe they become more interesting. If if you put Robert Stevenson in a contender's bullpen, I might trust him in some high-leverage spots. There's a, there's a handful of interesting names, but it's just tough sledding in Colorado. Yeah, in terms of the, the bullpen... Uh, Bard has 20 saves this year. He's a two ERA, so he's been good. Uh, are you in general staying away from the Rockies bullpen? Uh, obviously, if you have Bard, you, you know you're you're gonna own him. There's he's not gonna be available in most leagues. Uh, but I, I mean, there's nobody to speculate on here, right? You avoid this situation, right? I would wait until they make a move because it doesn't even sound like they want to trade Daniel Bard. I saw a report they want to extend him, and they could easily just share. The handful of save opportunities they get between two or three different relievers and given the ratio risk, shaky skills, difficulty of the park, it's an easy situation for me to stay away from, at least initially upon uh, the trade deadline arriving. 
And you mentioned Chad Cool. Chad Cool's ERA for the year is 4.11. His XFIP is 4.86. So even when you're doing well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're meant to do well. That If you look at all the ERAs on that on the bullpen, whether starter or the relievers are a little bit better. But the starters, I mean, how can you even want anyone? Maybe you get Kyle Freeland because he can go deep into games and he can get maybe a win out of him, even though his record is 4-7. and seven. He, he stays in games long enough to get a decision. So of all the pitchers, I think maybe Kyle Freeland, he's not, I don't think he's going to get traded, but I think he's a guy, if you want to stream, he's has a history, has a history of pitching well at Coors. This was a couple of years ago, and he did, and it was, a, it was an anomaly. It was like one of those Ubaldo Jimenez type things. It, it was an anomaly, but if you want to stream someone, I think the best guy to stream would be Kyle Freeland. Uh, Chad Cool has a home road split. He's uh, ERA at home is 470 uh, on the road, 352. So Cool is interesting. Um, you know, should you steer clear of all Rockies pitchers at home? And uh, I'd say Rockies pitchers, period. Um, the only thing is that, as Ruben said, they do tend to go deep into games. But, uh, I mean, this is uh, – the other thing I'd say is that in a points league, points league, because they go deep into game, then the Rockies pitchers become uh, interesting if you're – point structure is that they reward innings more than strikeouts, right? The, I know at Tout Wars head-to-head, uh, points are given a lot to the innings. So I might, I, I picked up uh, Herman Marquez, I picked up Freeland here and there uh, if I think they're going to last long because, you know, if they last six innings, I get 18 points and there isn't a lot of strikeouts. You're better off with, with a long innings, low strikeout uh, low strikeout guy than, uh, than the reverse. So maybe in a points league format. But in Roto, are are, they, are you rostering anybody at any point? Like in a 15-team league, NFBC format, Derek, if they're on their waiver wire, are you saying, oh, yeah, let's stream Herman Marquez, let's stream Freeland? Only on the road and really only Marquez in those formats. He's, I mean, skills-wise, still averaging 95 on the fastball. He's got two breaking balls, throws the occasional changeup. I just want to know what would happen at this point. I know he's not quite the pitcher he was at his peak, the stuff is slowly beginning to break down. The Rockies need to make a decision here because if they hold Marquez too long, if they wait until the last year of that team-friendly deal, the value is going to be mostly gone. There may still be teams that are desperate for starting pitching, especially controllable pitching, who believe they can make Marquez you know, a mid-threes ERA guy who could possibly be a sneakily available number one starter that doesn't necessarily fetch a typical number one starter price via trade. Yeah. Let's go, move on to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and let's start with you, Ruvain. Uh, Walker Bueller, what is his injury status, timetable, and so on and so forth? Walker Bueller is actually currently shut down, and he's going to be shut down for quite a while. He was supposed to be shut down for about a month or so, um, and then after that, we'll see. Then he has to start ramping up and make sure he doesn't have any setbacks. And pitchers with setbacks happen all the time. Again, I'm going back to Jacob deGrom. He was pushed back again. He was supposed to possibly start over the weekend or maybe beginning of next week. He was pushed back again. Pitchers are very fickle creatures. They, they, they're creatures of habit. If they don't get the, what they're supposed to do, if they don't fit the certain you know mold, they have a problem. And Walker Bueller is out of that right now. He, he's not doing his normal pitching stuff, which means he has to ramp up, which means that even if he ramps up, you may be able to get maybe a half a month out of him, maybe a full month. Is he going to start like he starts like he normally does, six innings, seven innings? I don't think so because he has to build up for it. So is it even worth having him on your roster right now? Um, if you have a playoff team then and you know you're in the playoffs, then you hold on to him. But if you're if and you prefer a head-to-head. But otherwise, I don't see a reason to hold on to him. You're not going to get that much value out of him. 
Yeah, other than mono leagues, do you agree, Derek, that uh, he should be dropped? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's uh, any guarantee we see Bueller pitch again during the regular season. It really could be a ramp up right before the playoffs if we even get that at all. Right. Um, Tony Gonsolin uh, having a great year. Uh, should you be worried about his all-star game performance? And in any case, what do you think his value is rest of the year? And can he do this in the future? So I would not be all that worried about the all-star game. But I think with Tony Gonsolin, we've all been pretty skeptical of anything close to the level he's maintained to this point. I mean, a sub-3 ERA, sub-1 whip, a ridiculously good record, too. I mean, just, I think he's 11-0 and entering the second half, which is just weird. And we, we know how fluky wins can be. I think if I'm looking at Gonsolin for the rest of the season, he's probably a top 40 starting pitcher because of the team context, if, if you're going to be really aggressive with this value, I do wonder if Gonsolin's the kind of player that because many people playing fantasy are going to look at him and say, he's kind of my extra guy. My pitching is good. I hit on the, a late Gonsolin pickup or an early season Gonsolin pickup. Maybe I can actually trade him and, and someone else can deal with all the regression. And you might actually get a deal done. I just think as long as when you're making a move to get Gonsolin, you're expecting a 370 ERA and a 120 whip with a little less than a strikeout per inning. I think if that's where you expect the results to be the rest of the way, you won't be disappointed. Ruvain, uh, he's thrown a career-high 93 innings this year. Are you worried about a possible shutdown? Yes, 100%, and I was actually going to mention that because he, the most innings he's pitched for a, for a season, minors and majors, is 128 combined innings. He's at 93, which means he will probably hit the wall. He's always been used as a piggyback, as, as a short start, but now he, they're, they're stretching him out. They're getting as much as they can out of him, but he's been extremely lucky. He has a BABIP of 197. That's very lucky that there's going to be some regression there. Even Jake Arrieta back in 2015 when he had an ERA of 1.0, 77 had a Babbitt of 246. So I think the Babbitt, if the Babbitt changes, his luck's going to change and change, and there's going to be regression. And this is the typical buy low, sell high. This is the guy you want to sell high right now. You can get the most value out of him in a trade. And just, just Derek, you mentioned it. These, these, this is like the fourth or fifth picture on your roster to begin with. If you can get any value or a lot of value out of him, this is a, this is a perfect time to trade him because there will be regression. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's going to be shut down. Uh, I mean, the the Dodgers are going to be in the playoffs, but you can definitely see skip starts and the volume that he's been pitching at, the paces, that that has to change for him. I, I can't see this uh, happening. And, uh, you know, of course, he, he, he's he's obviously not this good. His BABIP is 197 this year. I mean, the, a, a regular BABIP is like 290. Uh, he's 100 points lower than a regular BABIP. That, that's crazy. Uh, so, you know, you got to expect regression. But, uh, yeah, the, the volume also, the pace is going to be going lower. All right, uh, before you go on to some of our waiver wire and players like that, just uh, anybody want to throw out some NL West predictions? I predict the Dodgers will win their division. Uh, it's pretty not bold. Uh, I will say that the Padres will uh, – I, I will say that the Giants will pass the Padres. I'll make a bold prediction. Giants will pass the Padres in the standings. I'm not going to say if one will make the playoffs or not, but I'll, I'll just say that they'll flip by the end of the year. What about you, Derek? If the Padres are the winners of the Juan Soto sweepstakes, then I think they end up taking <laughs> second in the division. If they can't get deals done 
to get significant upgrades between now and August 2nd, I think you're right. Uh, so I, I think a ton hinges in this deadline. I just think the window is open right now for San Diego. So that, that's why I'm so confident they're going to do something, even if it's not so. They're going to go out and get an impact player or two and really try and make a run at it. So I, I think they're going to be more aggressive than the Giants. The way they were playing before the break, though, does put them closer to the can't-go-all-in sort of bubble that I'd like them to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you said earlier about, uh, you know, them unloading uh, Myers or, or Hosmer for the money, I can totally see that. I can totally see, all right, you could take Abrams, but, uh, you know, no problem, but you're going to have to take a contract. And so uh, you're probably limited or it's, it's more likely to, to go to a team that to, that has some money to take on. Right? Okay, well, well, we'll we'll take on this contract. We'll also take your prospects. Uh, and you know, and then and then you get you know our star player. I, I can see that kind of trade really happen. Uh, Ruben, any predictions? I actually agree with your bold prediction. I think the Giants will pass the Padres. I think the Giants will finish in second and make the playoffs. And I think the Padres will miss the playoffs. How about that? Uh, I actually think that the Giants will make a big splash. They made a big splash last year. They got Chris Bryant. No one saw. No, I mean, people heard of it, but no one really thought of it until it actually started happening. So I think the Giants are going to make a big splash, which is why I still think Juan Soto's on their radar, even though everyone's not really so you know talking about it that much. I think Juan Soto is a better fit in San Francisco than he is in San Diego. Yes, the Padres have more people to trade for him, but I think the Padres are going to use their chips and they're just going to, tr- you know, run with what they have. But I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. That's my bold prediction. So, Derek, I know we talked a little bit about this one uh, on the uh, Athletic podcast, but what is the likelihood of Juan Soto actually getting traded this year? I think it's far less than fifty-fifty. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in the thirty to forty percent range right now, just simply because the Nationals don't have to do it they have time on their side if they don't like the offers they're getting in season there might be a few other teams that aren't thinking about trading for him at the moment that will think about things very differently in the light of a full offseason reshuffle right even though it's not a long-term commitment by making the trade because you have two years of control it's an it's a significant amount of money for smaller market teams that might not be able to take on a 17 million dollar player in season, right? So 30 to 40% for now. And we'll have to wait and see if anything heats up here in these next couple of weeks. Do you think Scott, do you think Scott Boris will try to push it at all? Because he has a lot of connections and he is Juan Soto's agent. Do you think Scott Boris will stick his hand in there and try to push a trade? I don't know if he really has any leverage at the moment, but I think that's one of the interesting things about Steven Strasburg having 10 and 5 rights is if a team like the Mets were going to get involved, one of the things they could do is say, we'll take on any contracts you want us to take on because money doesn't matter to us, if that's how they feel about it. Uh, But then you're giving a ton of leverage to Boris in that situation because he could then say, well, Strasburg won't go here, 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 and here. Uh, but I think that favors the Mets since the Mets have you know very deep pockets. Let's talk waiver wire. Uh, what are uh, one or two players that you think that we should be looking at to pick up this week? Let's start with you, Derek. Akil Badu is still pretty interesting to me. People liked him a lot back during draft season. You know, the Tigers gave him that pretty quick demotion back to AAA. He went down, actually played really well, showed power, showed speed, showed, showed good plate skills, had a really nice slash line. I think it was a 300, 400, 500 line with Toledo. He's still just 23 years old, and I think the success he had last year gives me some confidence that he can continue to make adjustments at the big league level 
And I expect Robbie Grossman to be among the veteran players dealt, which opens up a lot of playing time in the outfield. So Akil Badu is just one of those guys that people have sort of forgotten about, and I like what he was doing during that time in the minors. Good stuff, Ruben. I actually have three players. I already mentioned Austin Slater. So he's only 19% owned in CBS. He's batting 455 recently, um, and he with three, three stolen bases. So he's batting 300, 303 on the year. I think he's a guy. If you if you need an extra outfielder and you don't and you must take an outfielder and you don't want to roster Connor Joe, I think Austin Slater is a good option. Another guy I want to mention, Dan Vogelbach. He's only 10% owned in CBS. He's batting 228, but he has 12 homers. If your team needs power, he will probably be traded. There've been ready rumors that he's going to go to the Mets. Um, he's he, if he get if he does get traded and he goes to a better lineup, his average may stay the same. Um, but you'll still get a lot of power out of him, and I think a, a better situation for him will be a lot you know be a lot more uh, conducive to better stats for him as well. Another guy I want to mention is Ramon Urias of Baltimore. He was batting 224 on July 4th. But in the last week, he's he's batted 417 with two homers. He's got his batting average up to 255, nine homers, and 31 RBIs for the season. He's only 16% owned in, C- in CBS leagues. I think he's a better option even in deeper leagues instead of, let's say, a Jose Iglesias, who's just an empty average. So he's eligible at shortstop and second base. I think he's a great option. By the way, I'm sticking with my bull prediction of Trey Mancini to the Mets. I know Baltimore has been hot, but... Uh, it's like the perfect fit. I I think that's going to happen, and you'll see Dom Smith out of here. Uh, I think we'll, I think the Mets need a DH. Um, have Kyle Finnegan. Is he the closer right now? If so, he's only twenty percent owned, and I know Washington's not great, but I think he's the guy. So Kyle Finnegan probably should be a little bit more owned than twenty percent. Uh, if he's available in your league, I would give a look. Uh, Carson Kelly. Um, he's been up and down, he's now up. He, in the last 30 days, he's batting 304 with four homers, especially in a two-catcher league. Carson Kelly is probably under-owned. He's 20% owned on CBS. Give him a look. And I'll also mention Jose Iglesias. Uh, it's a streaming play. A lot of home games next week. He's only 15% owned, and he's a 300 hitter. If you need a little bit of boost in average, he's definitely the guy. So just take a look at him. Pitcher preview. Uh, Derek, who's a pitcher that you are interested in picking up, either for the long term or for the immediate uh, coming scoring period? So the longer term, like deeply guys that I'm looking at right now, Braxton Garrett is still pretty interesting to me. I know he's been scooped up in a lot of NFBC leagues in the last couple of weeks, but he's showing consistently good command and just doesn't seem like for a young pitcher, he's anywhere near his innings cap for the season. So I think he'll continue to get lots of opportunities in Miami, the great park to stream in. So I think he's really interesting. And looking a little bit deeper, I just think with the Chris Sale injury, the latest Chris Sale injury, Cutter Crawford, we talked about him a little bit under the radar, just a good deep arsenal of pitches, probably a better pitcher than the surface numbers would lead us to believe in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I think the Red Sox might be limping through the second half looking for quality innings if they don't find a way to add some innings at the deadline. I know they got James Paxton working his way back, but I think Crawford is a little bit of a sleeper here for these next few weeks. I'm not kidding you. Those were actually the two people I was actually going to mention. Uh, the, the Crawford one, though, might have been influenced since we talked about it on the other show. But uh, Crawford, the only issue with him is that uh, he does walk a lot of players. So just be careful of that. And Braxton Garrett has two good matchups. He's playing Cincinnati twice in the next two starts. 
Cincinnati, not a great team, and he strikes at about a strikeout per inning. We talk about in the show that if you're going to get a guy, you know, if he has a decent enough strikeout rate, probably a decent shot. If, if it goes wrong, at least you get the strikeout. So there you go. The other guy I'll throw in, uh, JT Brubaker. He has a lot of strikeouts. Every time I look at any league for, all right, who's gotten the most strikeouts lately, who's at the top of the list, it's always Brubaker. And again, he's not a guy that you would normally throw. If the matchup is good, he's very, very interesting. Um, and if you're not concerned about ratios, if the strikeouts are a bigger deal and wins doesn't matter, Brubaker is an option. I think it's really context-dependent on where your team are is in the standings, in, in the categories. But Brubaker is definitely somebody who could be a fit, and he's widely available. Uh, Ruven? I was looking at all the starting pitchers. Nothing really thrilled me there, so I did what I normally do. I start looking at the relievers and see who's available there because if you don't like anything that's out there, you don't have to necessarily force the issue and sometimes just go for the reliever. You'll have a better chance of getting better uh, ratios. So I'm going to mention the trio of relievers from Tampa Bay. Colin Poche, or Poche, I'm not sure how you mention, how you pronounce it, Brooks Raley, and Jason Adams. They have been splitting. They are the three-headed monster right now, the, the horses in the stable for the Tampa Bay Rays. Poche, all of them have great ratios for ERA and whip. Poche has six um, uh, has six saves so far this year. He's only 21% on CBS. Brooks Raley also has six saves. He's only 10% on CBS. Jason Adams has four saves, and he's 16% on CBS. So if you can't stomach the JT Brubaker because you're worried about that blow-up, those are the three guys you can just stick in there. You may not necessarily get saves, but they're going to help your uh, your ratios, and they may even get you a save. Good stuff. Anybody else that we're missing? Uh, either a hitter or a pitcher, just to throw it out there. Dustin May, I think, is quietly making his way back toward the big leagues. He's going to go through several rehab starts, probably going to be about mid-August when he's back, but he's an impact guy in a lot of leagues when healthy. So depending on how your league tends to handle players like this, just a name that you want to keep in mind for a pickup a week or two before he's back at least. All right, let's go to Ruvain's injury update. Uh, are you starting with DeGrom, who's pushed back? No, I me- I mentioned him already, so I'm not going to mention it again because it's already it's it's killing me that he's not coming back. Um, but I it, it's just very frustrating. But yes, he was pushed back. Um, because he felt some soreness. He's still going to have his his day to throw in a couple of days, and hopefully, maybe at the end of next week, you'll see him in a, in a major league. This is why I I actually said when he first started doing his his um his rehab starts that maybe they should have his rehabs in the majors because you don't want to waste those innings. If he's healthy, don't waste those innings because you don't know if you're going to ever get them in the majors. Yeah, well, we, why, why do they do that? Like, I mean, he's throwing the same inning. He's still throwing 100 miles an hour. Why don't they just put him in and, all right, here's a here's a two-inning stint to be the reliever. Like, what, well, well, I, I, I think the reason is, is because he never had a full spring training. I think that's the only reason why they did that. If he pitched to start the season, then got hurt, and then started coming back, I think they would have done it. Plus, they don't necessarily need him now which is bad for us fantasy owners. They're saving him for when they really need him down the stretch and possibly playoff time. So I think that's probably the reason why. Wait, so, sorry to, to, to interrupt this, but like, Derek, do, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Like what, you know, we're, we're, forget about like low-level guys, but elite guys, DeGrom, Scherzer, like wh- why in the world are, are they doing rehab? It's not like they're trying out new pitches. Um, you know, and, and especially if DeGrom, if they're throwing almost max, you know, if they're throwing like 98, 99, you know, if they're throwing a three-inning stint, why not just do it in the majors and just, you know, uh, be a long man? Like, well, why do teams do that? Yeah, maybe early in the rehab stint, you're just worried about roster management beyond that because you're not going to rush the timetable 
for someone going through that, you're going to still want them to be on a schedule of going like a starter, even if they're not working like a starter. But at the end of the rehab assignment, there might be a case for that. I mean, the thing I keep thinking about when I look at Jacob deGrom right now, his fastball velocity was up every single year starting in 2016 through last season. And as fun as that is, I'm just not sure that that's a good trend for a six-year window. I don't think that really works. Yeah, I mean, it's just... just uh, unbelievable. You, 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 sometimes you see a jump, you know, one-time jump two miles an hour, but that's just like a two-mile-an-hour jump every single year. It's it's mind-boggling, and obviously he hasn't been able to be healthy. All right, moving. Continue, please. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption there. Not a, not a problem. Um, we mentioned uh, Steven Strasburg earlier in the episode. He's dealing with a stress reaction in his ribs, and reports have been saying that he's basically done for the year. So if you still have him on your roster, you could probably get rid of him. You're not going to get any much of fantasy value out of him. Mike Trout was placed on the 10-day IL. It was postdated. It was I'm sorry, it was predated. So he is possible and possibly able to come back. He hasn't played since July 12th. He's able to come back the second game out of the out of the. Uh, Play out of the All-Star break, so it is very possible that he will be out, and they just wanted him to rest, and that's why they put him on the IL. Dominic Smith hit the IL with ankle inflammation. He rolled his ankle in Chicago in the last series before the All-Star break. Um, you may see more playing time for Luis Guillorme, J.D. Davis. Luis Guillorme, he's maybe an empty average, but it's still a batting average. J.D. Davis, that's more for power upside, but he hasn't really been doing that much either. Mitch Haniger, a guy who should be on everyone's radar. He is currently on a rehab assignment. He just started it. Jerry DePoto has actually said sometime over the next two to three weeks, we should have Mitch back in our major league fold. So he will be back within two to three weeks. This is according to Jerry DePoto. Um, Lance McCullers, another guy who may have value, also is starting a rehab assignment. He's starting it tomorrow, actually, Friday. Um, he's going to start his rehab assignment. He's going to need a, he's going to supposed to throw two innings. We'll see how that goes. I don't know how much value you're going to get out of him. I don't know how much they're going to be able to stretch him out, but that's just something to keep an eye on. Juan Yepes has a grade two strain of his forearm. He's going to be out for at least a couple for a while. Um, Corey Dickerson, Lars Newbar may see additional playing time. Another guy I just want to mention who may be on someone's radar. Um, we mentioned him in a prospect episode a couple weeks ago. Austin Martin. He has a wrist injury. There's no real diagnosis yet for his injury, but it's not season ending. But what that means is if you have him in a, in a redraft league, he is probably not going to be called up this year. All right, and that will do it for our show. I want to thank our guest today, Derek Van Riper from The Athletic, for joining. Derek, thanks so much for coming on, and why don't you just tell everyone what's uh, going on with you, uh, where we can find you, uh, reach you, and uh, listen to all your fantastic stuff that you do. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys, and, and thanks for joining us on Under the Radar on Wednesday, Ariel. The uh, easiest way to follow my work is just to follow me on Twitter, at Derek Van Riper. There's no... Uh, no numbers, no underscores, nothing strange like that. Pretty straightforward handle. Um, many shows per week right now, Rates and Barrels, the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, and the Athletic Baseball show. So if you like baseball outside of the realm of fantasy, I'm a part of that show as well. Amazing, amazing work. Uh, definitely one of the best hosts, and, and you just do this on a daily basis and produce fantastic stuff. Uh, you're also very aesthetically uh nice to listen to uh you've got a nice uh, uh refreshing voice and so uh it's always a pleasure to listen to you and i listen to you uh, multiple podcasts a week so thank thank you for uh brightening uh, our days with that anything i can do to help right it's, uh, it's tough out there yeah 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 no no rain out where you are but uh but you still produce good stuff <laughs> ruben what about you 
You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come. I also have a weekly article on Rotobowler that comes out usually on Saturday, discussing all the injuries I, sh- I mentioned on the show, plus a hun- plus all- many others. Who will be up next, and how long the players will be out for? And uh, by the way, and Derek's also a fantastic fantasy baseball player. Uh, always does fantastic in expert leagues, and uh, uh, that should be noted. Uh, great podcaster and and good player good player too uh, i'm ariel cohen you can read my stuff over at fangraphs and over at rotoballer uh atc ref that season projections i'm hoping the guys at fangraphs turn on the lights soon because the numbers are out there and uh that'll be interesting we've never done a rested season projection before uh took a little while to get some credibility and perfect the method and uh it won't be as credible as the preseason ones but hoping that they'll be meaningful um, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast, and of course, follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. No numbers, no dashes, no anything either. All right, once again, thank you so much to Derek Van Riper for joining us on today's episode. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.